What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared. I'm joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. Hey, film fans. And Austin. Yo. And the Wisecrack CEO himself, Jacob. What up? All right. So today we're breaking down a movie that has been requested quite a number of times for us to do either videos on or a podcast on. And we had one of our patrons bring it up to us in the Discord, so we decided... Let's go ahead and do it. We're doing Synecdoche, New York, written and directed by Charlie Kaufman, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. But uh, before we get into that, I want to let you guys know that we did a Patreon poll on what movie we should do next. We did this once before. We did it again. So wisecrackplus.com, our patrons voted, and both me, Ryan, and Austin all put in two movies each. That's right. Do you guys remember which movies you put in? I believe I put in um, Starship Troopers... I don't remember my other movie. Was, was your other movie? The oh, S- The Sandlot. The yeah. Sandlot. Oh, that, <laughs> the Sandlot would have been so fun. So lot to and break what, down what were the two that you put in, Austin? I honestly have no fucking clue. I think you put in Room and Tree of Life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jesus you know what? I was, I, was banking, I was banking on that people might think that Room was the room and that we'd kind of get some confused votes in there as well. <laughs> All right. And the two movies I put in were Train Spotting and Doubt. And then Kevin, as who, a, as a, yeah, to throw a wrench in the system. The, the, yeah, Kevin, who does a lot of work for Earthling Cinema, just to throw a wrench in the system, he put in Goodwill Hunting. The motherfucker. I, I so, gave I gave permission to throw that in there to see what it did. <laughs> All right. So starting from the bottom, with ten votes, last place is Doubt. My movie. That's right. Of course, dude. That movie is that, that movie is so good. So, I, mean, I love it too. On but, the chat, yeah. Kevin was like, "Yeah, and who would vote for Doubt?" And I was like, "Doubt. That's like my <laughs> so, favorite so movie." Good. Five of the ten fans of that movie voted for it, so yeah, I think that was a yeah, good turnout. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> In second to last place with twenty votes is Tree of Life. Yeah, that's I, right. Of course. I'm honestly glad. <laughs> yeah, one of the three movies I own on iTunes. I love Tree of Life. Me too. All right. Third from last, with 24 votes, is The Sandlot. Boo! That's the way I feel. That's everyone likes that movie. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I haven't seen that movie that since like I a, was in diapers. It's <laughs> like a 4% I on Rotten I guess everyone's like, I don't want to hear people break that down. You yeah. Know? What are we going to do with it? All right, next, with 26 votes, is Room. Nah. All right. You got that double vote. That's double that, room vote. That's cheating. I, I have not seen that one. All right. Next, with 37 votes, is train spotting. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't win. So my both of my choices are now out. Both of Austin's choices are out. Wait, so that wait, are we are we to the top two? No, we're up to the top two right now. Holy fuck. Wow. Here so it is. here is the second place winner with 46 votes. Goodwill hunting. That means that number one with seventy-three right. votes blowing Damn. it out of the water is Starship Troopers. Uh-huh. That's right. Yeah. Give it to me. Let's yeah. go. Finally I win a fucking Patreon poll. That's right, Patreons. You you, you know what's up. Yeah, so Just you know, you I have actually one. not seen this movie. So Great movie. I got a because question. Do you guys go for think it. that the love for Goodwill Hunting is like over proportional to how good the movie is. Like, listen, I like Goodwill Hunting, like everybody. Okay, I like it, but I feel like just the a cultural YouTube clip scene when they're in the Harvard bar and he like smacks the guy down for hitting on the girls and trying to show off. Like, I feel like that's been memefied a bunch. And I don't. Know, I feel like the movie is like 
people think it's like the greatest movie of all time when it's a good movie, but it's not like the best movie ever, right? I, I don't know. It's- I got to be honest. I was not too happy when I heard that Kevin slid this one in there because <laughs> it's not that I don't like the movie. I just don't have anything to say about it. And I wasn't happy either because it's like he's not going to be here. It's like I really wanted to give whoever won shit. <laughs> well, that's or why I, I wanted here. to bask in my victory, you can which give is what's me happening. The shit. Give it right. to me. <laughs> All right, so just to, just to let you guys know, next week we're actually doing Fight Club because Ooh, Alex nice. is coming into town, and that's one of his favorite movies, and he's reading the book. He's actually in the air right now. And so we'll see you next week for Fight Club. But the week after, we will do good on our promise, and we will be doing Starship Troopers, which I'm excited for because I've never seen it. Oh, I cannot wait. That's one of the reasons I can't wait either is because Jared hasn't seen it, and we're going to get to talk. I can't okay, believe you've never cool. seen it. Yeah, yeah, that'll be fun. That's what this podcast is all about. So without further ado, today we're talking about Synecdoche, New York. Uh, quick reminder, if you guys want to send us a voicemail with your thoughts, comments, jokes, whatever, 213-534-8807. Now, before I ask for first impressions, Ryan, I, I have to take a trip down memory lane with you. <laughs> Are you aware that this is the first time we ever hung out is when we saw this movie? When you said it on the podcast uh, or recently. Or, oh, I or, already said that? Or, or, or no, I think you maybe when, when we were prepping this, I was like, oh, I didn't remember that. So, yes, take me down memory lane because it's been a while. Oh, man. All right. So let me take you down memory lane. I was in editing class, and this goofy-ass dude dressed as a Christmas elf <laughs> walked up be? to me and said, Hey, dude, you want to go see Cinedoce, New York with Charlie Kaufman? <laughs> with Charlie Kaufman in Q&A? And he reeked of weed and dressed as a Christmas elf with an all-white beard. By the way, for, what I'm referring to is that for a month, Ryan dressed as a Christmas elf and only referred to himself as the name Napkin. There's and he a lot even of got backstory. The, he even, yeah, there's a lot of backstory. He even, <laughs> he even got the teachers to call him Napkin. And so I said to myself, you know what? I'm in college. I'll, I'll, I'll just say yes. <laughs> and so uh, we went to go see it. And I even remember the question you asked Charlie Kaufman at the end. Do you remember the question? Zero clue. <laughs> at the end of the movie, you asked Charlie Kaufman, hey, man, do you ever thought about doing a movie about time travel? And I think like everyone else in the like everyone else was asking these questions that were so far up their ass <laughs> that the audience kind of giggled at what seemed like a very juvenile question. But I remember, if you may perhaps remember, we were in the very very front row, like we were mm. inches away from Charlie Kaufman at the Alamo Draft House, right? No, this was at the Paramount. Oh, okay, I don't see. I don't know anything. <laughs> Keep going. And Charlie Kaufman took the question very seriously, and he said, "Yeah, but I haven't been able to figure it out." <laughs> anyway, so let's get first impressions of this movie. Ryan, what do you think upon revisiting it? Oof, yeah, I remember after watching uh, the first time, um, we we left, and I remember being like, "Dude, I think I fucking love that movie." That was kind of my main first impression when I saw it those many moons ago with you, Jared. Was like, "Dude, I think I love that because I'd already gone and I I love Charlie Kaufman." Um, but yeah, like it is, I would say incomprehensible almost at first <laughs> when you first see it, but in a good way, like mm. not like in a Dune, David Lynch's Dune where you can't follow the story. It's like you can't follow the story, but you, that's, that's baked into the, the, the narrative. You know, you, you, you get that this is like, they're making a story within a story within a story. And it, it when it gets convoluted, that's kind of part of the charm, but you definitely on the first viewing, I don't think can really follow it to a T. And that's probably not even the point. But, yeah, like, I definitely left. There's just a lot of strange things in this movie, obviously. So have you not seen it since that no, faded No, day? and then I watched it last night again. Oh, you but know. you've only seen it twice then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've okay. only seen it twice. Okay. But, uh, but and, and, and 
And I uh, um and, and and whenever I make my list at the end of every year, you know, I like that was my favorite movie of that year. Really, whatever it was, yeah. Wow. Even though that was my only time I'd seen it, but anyway, it stuck with me. But yeah, when I watched it yesterday, I noticed way more. I got way more out of it. I I think it's a brilliant movie. It, there's so much to dissect. It's not it's not for everyone. It's not like the most accessible movie, obviously. But I, it's a filmmaker's filmmakers movie mm. you know a writer's writer's movie it's like and it's about literally everything i think <laughs> like it's about life the universe living the perception of living other people relationships love death and that just is it's it's so ballsy and audacious and i can't believe it exists so bravo megan ellison bravo charlie kaufman and everyone involved for making it happen. Mm. But I, and yeah, let's dissect it because I honestly am ready for you to show me the meaning. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Austin, what what about you, man? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I similar to Ryan, I don't exactly remember my first experience. I just know that I had a I think this movie is brilliant sort of attachment to it. So I'd only seen it twice, or I've only seen it twice now. I watched it many moons ago, whenever it was. I didn't see it in the theater, but I saw it. I don't think anyway. Yeah, I don't think I saw it in the theater. If, if I did, it was like a little art cinema for sure because I don't remember ever going into a big theater with this film. But um, yeah, and then I revisited it last night and same sort of experience. Uh, I, I still think it's a brilliant film. Um, I think this is a writer's wet dream. I mean, the references to playwrights and to novelists, um, It's it, I think there's so much that I think that even I miss as somebody who's interested in studying literature and like uh, philosophy of language and things like that. It, I think that somebody who was like a, a hardcore literature theorist would be like, oh my God, there are all these references all the time. And I pick up on some of it, but I'm like, I feel like there's even more here. It's just, it's got layers and layers and layers and layers and layers. Um, it actually really is a difficult film for me to watch though, because it's so fucking heavy and i think post the death of philip seymour hoffman it's even more tragic for me because um it just adds another element of despair and tragedy that it didn't have the first time i saw it where i was just marveling at performance before now i'm marveling at performance and this guy's own struggles and uh it was fucking i don't know man it was a brutal experience and i think every single scene is very it doesn't let you stop there's you can't rest. There's not like like even a a scene when he's getting breakfast or when he's having food with Hazel is like still crazy fucking deep. There's not a moment where you're allowed to actually breathe and relax and just enjoy character dynamics or experience character dynamics. There's always there's there's multiple layers and so it's fucking just super heavy intellectually and emotionally, I think. All right. Jacob, what about you? Yeah, you know my fr- I I don't remember the first time I watched it so clearly. I just remember watching it the story that I have in my head is that I watched it and hated it so much that I had to stop watching it. So I thought I hadn't finished it the first time. I thought, like, wow, this is, like, a, a mess, like an ambitious mess. They gave, like, the writer the keys, and it was a bad idea. And then yesterday I finished it, and I was like, oh, no, I did finish the movie. Like, I remember even all the way to the uh, the last scene. But I really enjoyed it this time. I mean, I watched it on the plane the first 45 minutes. I was, like, literally laughing out loud again and again and again. It's like... The misery is so mm. funny. Like I remember little details, like, oh yeah, you know, these are papules and it's psychosis, but spelt differently. Like it's just so miserable and funny. So I, I loved it, but then I think 
it just like it breaks. Like at some point, it becomes so morose and so dark that I was like, oh, you know, I don't know if I am liking this. And I think it's unrelenting, like the way you put it, Austin. Like it's unrelenting. Like mm. at every moment, it's like yeah. maximalist in its misery. I did catch a yeah. couple literary references, and I I kept thinking like, oh, that name Cotard. Let me look that up. And I was like, oh shit, that's got meaning. And every little every word has got like another meaning or a reference or something, which is cool. Uh, but all in all, I. I liked it much, much more this time. I felt like I had the patience and the time to sit with it and like enjoy it and, and revel in it a bit. But I don't, I don't think I liked it at the end. Like ultimately, I think it's a little bit. I don't know. I just didn't. I don't think it like added up to much. For mm. me. <clears throat> yeah, I'm kind of in Jacob's camp. I, I don't think I like this movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because after Ryan and I saw it back in the day, I said to myself, I don't know what I thought about that movie. It's a lot to take in, and especially when you're with this in this theater with such enormous energy and the filmmaker present, it's easy to get caught up in this collective effervescence. And after it, I was just had no idea what I saw. And for years, people would say, what do you think about this movie? And all I could say is, I don't know. Yeah. Because I had not rewatched it. And upon rewatching it, this movie just does not work for me. I don't, the comedy doesn't work for me. This feels, to use one of Austin's terms, it feels like a try-hard Coen Brothers movie to me. <laughs> it didn't feel organic at all. I feel like Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance is great, and I wouldn't even peg it on his performance, but the character is so over-the-top pathetic. It just is painful at every corner. This is a movie that's like The Matrix Reloaded in that it's more fun to think about and more fun to research than it is to watch. Watching it, mm. I derive zero joy out of. <laughs> and in the beginning, were you laughing early on? Like No, I didn't. I really, I, I just, it seemed like Somebody saw the Coen brothers, figured out that they use a particular type of humor, and then just went too far with it. I, I don't know. Maybe I was anticipating it a little bit too much, but I think this movie is outrageously ambitious. I would never try something like this, so hats <laughs> off to Charlie Kaufman for doing it, but... Man, this movie is painful to watch. <laughs> you know, okay, like, it, what's funny, though, about your negative review is that I pretty much agree with everything you just said in the sense that I I get the very try hard to you know yeah. biting off more than you can chew and i th and, and and i and i did think that part of the joy that i got out of it was me kind of being like what is he going for with this what is he you know like trying to get into what is the intention of every cut and stuff which isn't necessarily the best way to go about enjoying a movie i completely get that it's not organic it doesn't feel natural it's totally he is trying to, you know, he, it, mind you, it's his directorial debut, and he is trying to, I feel like, use every part of cinema, audiovisual, editing, performance, story, craziness-wise, and just do a mashup. And it doesn't necessarily work in the way he, I think, intends, but I do think that it's it's got its own unique nature to it. That's yeah, but cool. my golden rule is that if you're going to be ambitious and if you're going to imbue your work with all these cryptic meanings that you have to dive deep into or you have to pay close attention to or you have to rewatch scenes and continue to reconsider and study it you got to give people something with the matrix it's badass fight scenes or even amazing performances great characters like morpheus and stuff like that with this they give you nothing well, they with do this, they, they give, give you, you the melancholy of despair because of your impending death <laughs> Well, <laughs> oh yeah, how could I forget about that? Right. right. <laughs> well, but, but but they give you the cool conceit of guy makes life world 
you know, humongous scale, yeah. scale uh, play, you know. So, but it's also a beautiful movie. Like, the film actually is aesthetically very pretty. At every place, it's kind of, it is like a painting. Like, you've got that beautiful burning house, which is probably a literary reference. I'll wait for you guys to answer on that. But you've got, be- the houses are beautiful. The, ca- the characters are quite beautiful. The misery is quite beautifully composed. You do have, like, some Wes Anderson-type props and things. I mean, it is a pretty movie. Uh, but I won't say that it's like an action, you know, it's not The Matrix. And it's got an amazing cast. Sure. Great cast? Yeah, great cast. I mean, the thing is, I think he does give us something, and we'll get into this after the recap, but I think he does give us something. It's just that what he gives the audience isn't something that is the broad experience of the audience. It's the experience of playwrights and writers and artists where you're trying to build something beautiful to stave off the impending doom of death. That it's like he finds his ability to create this play as his, like, trying to hold back the anxieties that he's experiencing elsewhere. And I think that's kind of the thing he's offering, that, like, art and the imagination and things like that can kind of help us with our neuroses. I think, if anything, that's the thing he's offering that's positive. But it's not really positive. Okay, so let me clarify. When I say that he's not giving us anything, I don't mean that he's not giving us anything of substance. By that, I simply mean that if you're going to make us study, you got to give us something, a conflict, a fight scene, some, like some candy to let the broccoli go yeah. down a little bit easier yeah. is what no, I mean. Exactly. And that's that's precisely what I mean. That's why I said I think he's giving us something. It's just not something that everybody can get on board with. It's like if you watch a, a movie that's made simply for editors, editors are going to fucking love it. They're going to be like, oh my God, the editing in this movie is amazing. But a lot of people are going to be like, Jesus, why was it so choppy or so weird? You know, it's kind of like that. Like he, it's so niche that it kind of is, it's just broccoli. All right, well, let's go into a recap so we can start breaking this puppy down. Theater director Caden Cotard is rushed to the hospital after a pipe explosion hits him in the head with a faucet, after which his brain starts deteriorating. He starts acting erratically, loses some bodily functions, and loses track of time. Caden's wife Adele and child leave him to live in Berlin. After an unsuccessful attempt at an affair with his co-worker Hazel, Caden gets an art grant and decides to create an uncompromised theater experience about, essentially, everything. What follows is a series of depressing vignettes that indiscriminately jump forward in time to his and the audience's confusion, including his father dying, him remarrying an actress named Claire, him failing to connect with his first daughter in Germany, him running into a newly married Hazel, cleaning his ex-wife's apartment when she's not home, a deathbed conversation with his dying daughter, his mother dying, etc., Caden's art project is a large collection of scenes that often blurs the line between performance, simulation, and reality. Eventually, the art project comes to resemble a whole city. 17 years into the project, he rehires Hazel to help him find someone to play him in the art project. They hire a guy who's been following him for 20 years and knows everything about him. Now with performers playing both Hazel and Caden, Caden starts seeing the performance Hazel, which only makes him want to reinvigorate the connection with real Hazel, who is newly single. (laughs) Soon, performer Caden kills himself and Hazel dies right after they consummate their love. Caden continues to impersonate Adele's housekeeper, Ellen, until they essentially become the same person. Out of ideas, an actress named Millicent becomes the new him and not only directs the play with a new vision, but through an earpiece, directs him through the last moments of his life, and by her direction, he dies. End of movie. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, Fuck. I want to see it again now. <laughs> Do you? I I certainly don't. All right, guys. The movie so, is fucking absurd. Man. It's crazy. So I needed some help here, guys. I'm going to be honest. So I did quite a bit of research. So I'm going to be pulling from three texts mostly. Uh, couple articles one called stages of life art time and meaning in synecdoche new york by david crew gone in 60 years by edward larenson and exploring charlie kaufman's synecdoche new york a philosophical analysis by jordan siren so let's start off with the title of the movie synecdoche so a synecdoche synecdoche (laughs) of course yeah (laughs) sounds like a taco so synecdoche is a place in new york i don't really think that that particular location Schenectady. Schenectady. Oh, yeah. sorry. Has, is, a, is a place in New York. I don't think there's any particular greater meaning to that. But a synecdoche is a literary term for a word that is a part for a whole. So if I say all hands on deck, it's not just your hands that I want on the deck. It's your whole body. The part, the hands, is a representation for the whole, your body. Mm-hmm. So in terms of how this refers to the rest of the movie – uh, this is from or the crew. opposite too. Uh, uh, the the whole to the part. Like if you said the whole world is there, you don't literally mean like every single person or whatever. It's when you create a sort of part whole relation. You know, part refers to the whole, or the whole refers to like a collection of things or something. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. Uh, all right. So from crew, he says in context. The title refers to Caden's vision of New York, mimesis, gargantuan in its scale, nestled within the larger city. But more significantly, it refers to the film's scope, how it struggles to contain the multitudes of life and death within its fragile framework. Um, I don't know. What did you guys – did you guys have any other things? I mean, obviously, sure, his play itself is a part for the whole. His play is a part for existence itself. Anything else that – anyone thought of well then there's the uh his first wife you know like like his hopeless play that is giant in scale and has has zero audience members or box office yet and then his his first wife is getting famous with these minuscule microscopic paintings oh right yeah yeah, yeah. you know and then that just gets smaller and smaller as the movie goes on and uh so that's more of that. Mm. I, I, I kept connecting it back, obviously, to his show. And then, of course, New York, being it's like a microcosm of New York. And th- this being a microcosm of it's one life, but for all life and all those cycles and it being representative of everything. Love it, and loss and pain. and Yeah. And it seems like he's really trying to explore, too, the problem of being able to understand other people. Right? And that he just ultimately falls into a radical individualistic a solipsism, right? Where he just gets, he's enclosed into his own thoughts. He needs external validation. He can never get anything from the other. It's this radical enclosure of this one character from the other, which would be a synecdoche in that his own individual experience has become inflated to sort of represent the totality. And so there's this this tension between the individual experience with every other other or potential other that you could experience. 
Yeah, so solipsism is one of the talking points that I wanted to bring up. I was actually going to go into death first, but since you brought it up, this is uh, from the this is from the Siren article, and he says. They are individuals who, taken on their own, represent the whole of humanity. Kaufman is telling us that individuals are synecdoches of the human race, mere slivers of the greater whole. Caden suffers because others suffer, because that is the nature of a living being. His woes are specific to himself, but they are common of everyone. Everyone gets sick. Every person has his or her heart broken or dreams crushed. And in the end... Everyone dies. Caden is not unique, so he should not look at his own circumstance as being such. That's very Buddhist, by the way. As I'm reading more and more Buddhism, that's the idea. You use your your pains to connect with the pains of others. Yeah, and he kind of, yeah, you get that turn at the end, right? When it's that, the aha moment. It's, oh, everybody is not an extra, right? Like, they're not extras in my life, but they are the heroes in their own individual stories, and there's that sort of like weird moment of illumination. And that's kind of when shit really starts to dwindle down. That's even though it's like only the last 30 minutes or so, um, that's when everything really starts to kind of like you're like, OK, this is where the movie's going to end now. And it's that final, I don't know, that final aha light bulb moment. Well, I think the moment you're talking about uh, but uh, is and to me, this is the weirdest line and moment of the movie. The first and this time I saw it, which is when he says, uh, you know, there's 13 million people on Earth, and what if I could get all of them to be a part in this play, right? Which is weird on a couple, for one, it's what y'all are talking about, like, you know, him trying to represent everybody. But then also 13 million people. It's like, so it, So the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, so this you know, this world that this movie takes place in has 13 million people in it, you know? Is that what you guys got out of it? Like, because the place, the whole... You know, they're acting like us, it seems like, our reality, but then at the same time, there's weird things that b- totally break all conventions of reality, <laughs> which I guess is part of the thing, Are you, you know, yeah, which we should go into, is this a dream kind oh, of thing. God, yeah. I mean, so this movie is so dense. So I- I'm going to address that in a second, but let me step back. So let's, t- let's talk about the solipsism thing, because yeah. this is, uh, I think, largely how the movie has been analyzed. So... Solipsism well, and it's, and is it's a, a recurring theme in Kaufman. His his film uh, Anomalisa is like clearly about solipsism, you know, um, and some mm. of the anxieties. So clearly, this is like a thing that he himself really finds problematic that he wants to work through. So solipsism is the philosophical idea that one can only be sure that one's mind exists, and that you can be skeptical of all outside things. One can only be sure of one's own subjectivity. So, according to Siren, he says that the film examines solipsism as its worst, demonstrating the dangers of such a philosophy through Caden Coter. So basically, we're supposed to hate him. He drives his wife away. He feels sorry for himself. He's selfish. He cannot see beyond himself. Exactly. He's nonchalant about Sammy's death. There's also something going on that I never really got indicating that something horrible is happening in the world that he's completely tuning out. And I think that part with 13 million people in the world, I think there's multiple things we're supposed to take away from here. One, when he's saying that, it's during Sammy, who's the guy who plays him, it's during his funeral. So first of all, he doesn't give a fuck. He doesn't seem to be too concerned with his friend dying because he's talking about the play during it. 
But also, I do think that that's meant to suggest that there are things happening in the background that suggest that the world is getting into a fucked up situation that he's just tuning out because he's only concerned about his own subjective experience. He's not concerned about people around well that those are the shots of like the there's like the 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 tanks going down the street there's the fucking old naked guy running around Mm -hmm. with on a leash like what there's bodies stacked at the i gotta be honest when i watch this movie i'm like i'm tuned out by this point i'm like charlie kaufman you lost me i'm not desensitized yeah i'm not giving you my critical thinking at this point no i i hear you but like i had to this was work for me (laughs) to come to 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 dig this stuff up and to yeah and to revisit parts of the movie because I was not incentivized to think harder. I just wanted the movie to end. See, mm. w- w- when I was talking about earlier about what is he trying to go for, like, 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 he never sets up that this is any sort of reality but the one uh, but our own at the beginning. It's two hours into this movie or something when this weird stuff happens that, you know, like you're seeing the tanks go down the street where you're like, what the fuck? You know, and that's on purpose. So... I do think it is kind of ballsy, like like he, he he's not only playing with time and space and kind of like reality, and then there's the whole thing of just like the house on fire, which is I would just call a, a complete absurdity, you know, and people are okay okay with it. So it's like they're this is not happening on our plane of existence. He's reading the paper at the beginning of the movie, and the paper, at, at least the stories he's focusing on are just like normal obituaries. There's like a couple, I don't know, what the little small news segments, I don't remember what they were, but they... They weren't like anything out of the ordinary. Right. To start He's with. fucking with but us the, a lot in this but movie. But the time this is kind of a troll of a movie. I feel like at sure. certain points. Nah, man. <laughs> Von Trier is the only real troll. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, this movie has trolly moments. Absolutely. I think there's deliberate manipulations, and he it's messes with funny. our expectations. Yeah, but it's it's not. At least to me, it's not. Well, and it's supposed, it's, to be it's it's supposed to, to be. Watch. You admit it's supposed to be, though. Right, but a troll is when you put your middle finger to the audience and say "fuck you," which I would argue Von Trier does a lot. It's just that, the, like, like you know, the 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 whole thing with like the the tattoo all of a sudden falling off of her, you know, and that's just the daughter? that's normal, you know, and like that came out of fucking nowhere. Like uh, he's and. What are you supposed to take away from that? Are you not supposed to laugh or, or kind of be like, I didn't laugh at he's that. just fucking with us kind of in a way? I mean, way? you are supposed to laugh, but I mean, it's like any comedy that you don't find funny. You know, you're supposed to laugh. <laughs> like, but I guess you, know, I was you do to be or you clever. Don't. That's kind of how you came. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I think that a lot of times in the movie, there are moments like that. So, for example, when at the beginning, when he's freaking out and he wants to go to Germany because he his four year old daughter is tattooed, his wife at the time says we're all tattooed and then she takes off her dress and it shows this giant tattoo a back tattoo that's a fucking picture it's a picture of satan's fucking face and then he says i've never seen that before i said never seen that before and and that yeah exactly it's it's ridiculous no it isn't because or whatever what do you uh, how would you describe it how would you describe it because i think we're meant to believe that his medical condition motivates this humor which honestly doesn't make it Look, man, it just doesn't work for me. That's all I can so say. So you see, okay, see, I guess my, in my mind, the, the whole time, all this weird stuff in the back of your mind was, oh, this is just hallucinations because of his, of his sink accident. That's kind of how you took it. There's an ambiguity. I think that that's deliberately placed there so that we're constantly asking ourselves, what is the nature of this time passing? Are we seeing it through his subjective mental ill state mental ill state to where 
it's truly we are being positioned through the lens of his mental issue. I, I mean, that's I, I think that we're supposed to take it away as that is at least a big possibility. Okay. And Okay, that's interesting. And also, I just now, a second ago, got what you guys were talking about with the 13 million thing. You guys were saying that so many people have died that now there's only 13 million left. I mean, maybe. maybe. See, I, I, was, I always had taken it that, that, that there was only been 13 million. This is just a different Earth. You know, but yeah, I guess that makes more sense. Is that I, I, something I, catastrophic happened with those tanks and, and, and the bodies? That, that course of time. Okay, that's yeah. way that, more makes way more sense. To me, the misery was very funny. So I, I remember. So I think of Philip Seymour Hoffman in, in Happiness, which is a movie that Jared and I do find funny. Oh fuck yeah! So like, and but it's just the same kind of misery humor <sighs> with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, he's just like, yeah, I really gotta fuck you right now. You know, he's really kind of like, just sort of so miserable that. You're laughing with him and at him. Here, I remember there's a line that I just I just pull up the script that made me laugh so hard. He's directing the actor in his first play before Catherine Keener has left. And he's like talking the direct to the actor and he's like, try to keep in mind that a young person playing Willie Loman thinks he's only pretending to be at the end of his life full of despair. But the tragedies that we all know that the young actor, you, is gonna end up in this very place of desolation. So like it just like this constant painting of misery. That's a joke. And he's getting, yeah, to me, I'm laughing like what, like right out loud because I'm like, this is so, this is so misanthropic. Like every single thing that's happening to him, he's being shat on over and over and over and over again. Every character kind of is, I guess, except for Catherine Keener. Uh, I love the line too with Catherine Keener when she's, you know, he calls her from in Berlin, and she's like, "I can't talk right now. I'm famous." <laughs> and the line yeah, just cuts yeah. off. <laughs> did you did um, you I mean, laugh, I think, Austin? I, I yeah, I laughed. Um, I chuckled. I didn't laugh. I didn't guffaw. But then again, I was watching this at like three in the morning my time, so I might not have been. I had the energy for that. But I mean, for me, I was more just intellectually stimulated. I was trying to really pay attention and and i know i did that the first time but i think i watched it like you know eight years ago when it first came out so or 10 years ago when it first came out or something like that so i think my own development gave me a different experience of it so for me it was more of an intellectual experience than it was uh an entertaining experience anyway and like i didn't get caught up like you did jared with the the is this some sort of fallout of a declining mental state I was just interested in sort of exploring it at a more general and broad level. So the solipsistic aspect for me was interesting because this is a film where I think the central character is clearly someone whose desires and expectations aren't meeting up. He needs external validation. I mean, one of my one of the things that was most intriguing to me and I wanted to pay attention to everything because you know, there's a line that's written or a line that's delivered unless it was improvised that it, and, and he stumbled, but that, that was intentional. At least in the edit room, they kept it on purpose. When he said that he wanted his wife, Adele, to come to see his opening night show, and this is the night when she decides to stay up and get stoned with Jennifer Jason Lee's character. Was it Maria? Um, and he says, oh, you know, I, I really want you to see. And before he finishes see, he says, I want to know what you think. And I thought that that was so important to understand because there's a difference between seeing and experiencing a play and what he wanted, which is he needed – an intellectual validation. He needed to know, do you give me some sort of uh, inscribed meaning that I can attach to this at an intellectual level? And there's something about how he needs like these, li li the, these linguistic categories, these linguistic 
codes to make sense of the world. I'm dying. What is this thing? Do I need to see this person? Am I going to a neurologist or a urologist? There's these playing of words. Words become so important as these things that codify our anxieties or our neuroses or the discrepancy between his desire and then what he's getting from the other that I thought that that's really what led to the solipsism and that's really what is like the engine that drives this film. And so I just was watching it thinking like, fuck, this is just a man who is a narcissist but not in the way that we think of it. Not like – he's not like uh, I'm going to the gym and trying to be fit narcissist. He's a narcissist in that he just perpetually needs external validation from himself and so he pities himself. He's almost self-loathsome self-loathsome because he's so obsessed with himself. And then he filters that outwards and projects that outward as a synecdoche to the world. So the whole world then is just a projection of his own neuroses and his own frustrations. And that's kind of how I I thought the solipsistic aspect of the film resonated. And I think it's worth noting that that's very, your description of the character right there is very close to Charlie Kaufman in real life. I was wondering, How he describes himself in interviews. I mean, if you've ever seen Adaptation, you know, that's, it's basically the same character, Nicolas Cage, this neurotic, you know, creative dude who's just, you know, hates himself. Always like, oh my God, I've got, I've become so fat, you know, or whatever he, (laughs) right. Yeah. And that's, and if you watch interviews with Charlie Kaufman, I mean, he's not a very confident guy, but he's brilliant, obviously. Yeah. 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 And then I think at the same time, he's, he's aware though of the pitfalls of his own inclinations is because he's, he's aware of his neuroses. He's aware that he is a neurotic. And then he's saying my, maybe he's saying my tendency as Charlie Kaufman is to do kind of what this guy does, but this is the like extreme version of that unhealthy, neurotic, solipsistic narcissism. I definitely think this is like a Charlie Kaufman fantasy for one, (laughs) this movie. Yeah. So let me go more on the solipsism thing because this film has been read as almost a – as Caden is essentially the arc of the film is him overcoming solipsism in a way. So, right. basically, and, and this actually kind of collides with a reading of the film on gender. So, he has this thing going on where not only can, is he so self-absorbed, but specifically he's got all these weird relationships with women. And so there's this thing where he's always got this muse. He needs a muse. He has this pathological need to put this woman on a pedestal and view her as some sort of divine influence and that's how he achieves his greatness. And people have argued that that in doing this, this robs women of their identities, only f- further cements them in this place of the other. And this idea of the other, that there is me and then there is everyone else and there is this distinction between the self and the other and that Caden and perhaps people are so engrossed in the self is ultimately what is trying to be overcome in this movie. And ultimately, this is achieved through the character of Ellen Bascombe, which is just it's fucking weird for a movie to only introduce this character an hour and a half in and we don't even see her. So this is Adele's housemaid. He pretends to be her. He steps into her shoes. And through this, it's been argued, she starts to grow. And then through Millicent, who is another female, through her direction, Caden steadily sheds his identity and inhabits Ellen's. Because, you know, at the end, we see that the old woman who once approached Caden and said, hey, Adele told me to give Ellen this key. Then she says, 
Caden told me to give you this key. And so, and then after this, we see a sequence in where we learn of Ellen's past and how her and her husband, Eric, never had a child, and it moves Caden to tears. And I think we're supposed to interpret this as if he's experiencing someone else's pain for the first time, or at least authentically for the first time. Uh, now, the interesting thing about this is you guys remember the scene where he goes to visit Olive, his first daughter, and she's dying yeah. for a ridiculous reason because the tattoos are wilting. Yeah, the right. flower, the, the tattooed flowers are yes, wilting. I remember that scene. And she mentions him leaving the family to have anal sex with his lover, Eric. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> say it. Say it. Say it, Ryan. So the interesting thing is... I cannot forgive. <laughs> Ellen's husband's name is Eric. Yes. And I Who, guess... Whose husband? Ellen, the maid oh. that he ends up becoming. So uh -huh. I don't know if we're meant to believe that he's already inhabited her identity or the chronology is messed up. Hmm. But I found that to be interesting. Oh, wow. wow. So he was having sex with Ellen's no, husband. No, I don't know. Well, maybe. She wanted him to say that, at least. Well, or probably that was, that, Or that was the story she was told, Olive was told. Yeah, because that's how it came off in the movie to me, was just that she was told, fed all this stuff by her mom, yes. and then he just says it. Or Jennifer Jason Leigh. To, to make yeah. her happy. Right. You know, well, but, I think that's why the Eric thing is a little bit interesting. But anyway, so this yeah, is, is why the movie becomes, like, it comes full circle and becomes the synecdoche because Caden comes to discover that he is Ellen, Ellen is him. Basically, instead of the division between me and the other, we're, it's, all, one. we're all one. Who is Ellen? Exactly. Who, so, are, who so am I? As, so, who are you? Right, exactly. What are just we? as right. the, an individual is a synecdoche <laughs> for the all of the human race, and that's what he ultimately discovers in the end when he when his identity blurs with that of Ellen the housekeeper. So you can take mushrooms or watch Synecdoche New York. I'm You'll sure all, mushrooms are much more fun. <laughs> <laughs> You'll all end up one. We are all one. Wow, I am Philip Seymour Hoffman. I never <laughs> yeah. thought about that. Yeah, I so, think uh, advice. For me the problem with this is that he doesn't actually get to experience otherness outside of himself. He's still experiencing it through his own self-aggrandizing need to fulfill satisfaction or desire. The difference is it's not now filtered in the same sexual dynamics that it was before, where it was, I need to fuck you for whatever reason. But now it's 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 a, a sort of more maybe appreciative awareness, let's say, of another body. But at the same time, it's still a projection of self. And I still find it to be radically depressing. I don't think he ever gets out of it. Like even on his deathbed when he dies, I don't remember exactly what he says, but he dies at the word everyone. He's saying something like, if only everyone, or if only I could reach everyone, and then he dies, or something along those lines. And I thought that was so fascinating because he's still trapped. He still can't get out of himself. And at the end, when the play has shut down, the production is shut down, everyone's gone, it's just him. It's not like there's some sort of resolution that he is like, oh, I, I now appreciate the other sex, or now I appreciate other people. It's still a very atomized, individualistic understanding of who human beings are. It's not a collectivity. It's not solidarity. It's not connection. It's not community. It's we are all our own individual bits, and that's the answer. And I just find that to be well, rather... And, but certainly and, it's not the... And, and his earpiece is telling him what to do, too. Didn't Don't you take it that his earpiece told him to die? 
or yeah, he's, he's being she directed. Does. Right, she does. Doesn't directed. she say? So even she say even the guy? whole time he's the yeah the whole time he's the cleaning lady, he's being directed. Like it's kind of almost like well he's he has he's he. He's taking instructions now. He's just like, all right, I'm, my life is paint by numbers, this direction. Well, now he's being directed. Yeah. What are you he, say, she becomes Jared? the director well, well, I was going right? to say, even if it's not a perfect ending, and, and I don't know if one can ever view the other or it can completely consume the other, but isn't it more like we see ourselves in the eyes of the other and only therefore can – and only in that way can humanity make progress – can we not read it in a little bit more of a more optimistic take? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm not trying to say if it's – I'm not making a moral judgment whether it's perfect or not. I just mean in terms of it getting out of the solipsistic circle, I'm not sure it's successful. Um, mm. But I mean, if if that is all we have, I mean, I think that's a very Western American Anglo understanding of human beings, that we are these radical atomized individuals – and all we can ever do is approximate an experience of some other radical atomized individual. But if you look at the history of human tradition, that's not how human beings have necessarily viewed each other throughout time in all places. Um, so again, I think I think I'm not saying that it has no value in thinking through it. I'm just saying let's not fool ourselves into thinking that that is like the trap that we must necessarily wrestle with. I think that that's the neurotic tendency that Westerners feel under certain cultural conditions and that I think that Kaufman's anxieties that he's exploring are precisely the anxieties of a writer and an artist that are wrestling with those social conditions that impose an atomized individuality upon you. All right, let's move on and talk about death. Obviously, this yeah. movie is very much about death, so there's a couple things I want to bring up. This is from the Crew article. So Caden's surname, Cotard, is a reference to Cotard syndrome, a mental illness that causes individuals to believe that they are essentially the walking dead. Uh, I don't think Caden suffers from this, but he's nonetheless obsessed with his own mortality, which Crew points out is evident right from the opening scene. So he first always, of all, yeah. his daughter Olive sings of being dead and buried. Uh, a poet on the radio discusses the melancholic month, month that is September, the beginning of the end. At the breakfast tale, while his wife Adele chats on her phone... Caden peruses the paper where where Harold Pinter dead at 76 and Harold Pinter dies announced Caden before realizing his mistake no before realizing his mis mistake no he won the Nobel prize so he's totally obsessed with death and so Crew says that this movie is fundamentally about death and how life passes and falters and stumbles and fades about how time consumes us throughout the opening scene you can note that time isn't passing normally, even before he gets hit with the thing in the sink. The radio that awakens Caden announces that the date is the 22nd of September, the first day of fall. But the Synecdochean, or the Synec I don't know how to actually say the name of the town, the newspaper that he's reading, proclaims that the date is Friday the 14th of October. Shortly afterwards, Caden sniffs from an expired carton of milk its use-by date is the 20th of October, so it shouldn't be expired yet. Happy Halloween blares from the television. <laughs> wow, I didn't really catch all this. <laughs> Wait. Okay, keep going. When a burst tap cuts open his head, so the thing when the, the, uh, tap, yeah. the sink fucks him up and sends him to the hospital, the hospital is decorated with Christmas trees. <laughs> so, That's cool. So I didn't it, catch I mean, that. such... 
meticulous Confusion. attention to detail. It's almost a shame that this movie isn't fun to watch in any <laughs> in any sense. <laughs> Someone's got to keep track of all that shit. <laughs> and so for Crew, he says that the underlying symbolism here is obvious, that he's pointing to the fact that time slips away from us, minutes turning into hours, to days, to weeks, to months, to years. Uh, yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, the, the first time it really is uh, comes through as an audience member, I feel like, is when he's like, God, I haven't seen my daughter in like a week or three weeks. And he, they're like, it's, it's been a year. It's been a year. You know, and, and then she's like, I need to get you a calendar. And right. you're, as an audience member, you're like, what? You know, I, I never seen a scene like that in the movie that had right. such a that, – that was how they revealed that information. Yeah. That this mm-hmm. isn't going to be a normal timeline. And then it keeps going like that. I like that. I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, 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 we were talking about, you know, you're talking about how not fun this movie is to watch. I If I edited 40 minutes out of this movie I and, and got the best shit, I can make a really good movie, I feel like, that you this, would like. We, you could Patreon this, this that. Is more fun, <laughs> this is more fun than watching the movie. <laughs> yeah. Like talking about it. The stuff that it works – when it works the best, it's the it's the comedy between like – like especially towards the end when it's everyone having to keep up with their relationships together. Like, hey, I'm having – you know, now <laughs> – An affair I, with you. I'm and... in an affair with you and so you got to – well, wait. That fucks our, uh, our relationship up. But now they quit. So you got to – you know, all that kind of thing. I, I, if it was more concentrated that I – I feel like that's a movie I haven't seen before like told really well. But this is a crazy version of that. <laughs> Yeah, it's nuts. I mean, the death uh, catch is all interesting because it, it reminds me of, and uh, I'm not sure if we've talked about it in any of our videos, but being towards death in Martin Heidegger, uh, which is one of the fundamental orientations that he explores in his book, Being in Time, as the sort of impossibility of Dasein, which is his name for, it's not human per se, but basically, let's say human. Um and being towards death is like the cessation of all the projects that Dasein will ever be able to throw itself into. That that no more are you going to be able to do anything. And then I'm on, on the philosophy podcast, Owls at Dawn, we're talking about the ethics of suicide right now. And we're, we just finished reading, and we're going to talk about it this week, Thomas Nagel's essay on death. And Nagel basically asks, is death an evil in itself? If it is, then that needs explanation. Like, why is death an evil in itself? And Nagel says, well, maybe it's because it's the loss of life. It's the cessation of potential future experiences that would lead to joy. So, like, before someone's born, we wouldn't say that's evil, but that's because they really didn't have the potential to experience things. But then once they're born, then death is evil because it's that loss of the potential future experiences that person could ever have, which means then, even if you've been dead for a thousand years, there's still an evil in it because you're not able to experience the internet or you're not able to experience Krispy Kreme donuts or whatever, you know? So it's you're still being cut off from the potential experiences of life, of living as an active, in an active sense. And so I'm thinking that this whole film is just haunting us by the inevitability of the loss of life. And that's, that, I think that, that cloud that is looming, it's so palpable that, um, and it's so intentional, like, like all of those references, Jared, that you mentioned, I mean, it's not subtle at all. Like, his mom dies tragically. His dad dies. His, da- his dad's body was riddled with cancer. It's not just that his dad dies. It's melodramatic. Right. His body was so withered away that they had to stuff the coffin with cotton balls to keep him, his body from Come sliding around, around in the coffin, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's so morose in its exploration and projection into the audience of the impending doom of death that I think it's supposed to induce that anxiety. And then it's that anxiety that 
makes it so that time for him becomes out of whack. His, his subjective experience of time, it isn't the calendar experience of time or the clock experience of time. There are bits where you see a clock that's moving and the time doesn't work in the way that we are accustomed to. And it's because all of that doesn't matter when we think of the relation to ourselves as a being towards death. And I, that just... Was, and Austin, really obvious. Yeah. I, I get this sense that like everything is slipping through his fingers. Time, mm. Olive, Catherine Keener and his wife, the loves of his life, everything that he actually wants to hold on to, even his own self-worth, all of those elements keep slipping and he keeps grasping for them as they mm. continue to sort of wither away and fly out of his life fast and he can't seem to grapple with the time or... Uh, even the, the his love or the relationships, nothing can sort of seem to stick around. And that transience also ties, obviously, to the end of life. But I just you keep seeing these scenes, I, particularly that scene where he's like slamming on the window when Olive is dancing naked. And he's just trying to mm. say, I'm your daddy, I'm your father. And he can't seem to get through. Everything just seems to be slipping out of his life and slipping through his fingers, like life and like time. Yeah. And do you think that Kaufman's trying to say that this is a singular but universal experience? Because that's what I think at the end. That's what's kind of so depressing is that this isn't just this guy's own manic experience. But at the end, he's like, oh, we're all like this. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and no, I think yeah. that's exactly it. I think that's to Jared's point. Like That's the coda that kind of makes it that synecdoche that kind of closes the circle is that we realize – just like he realizes – that his life is just like another's life. We we feel the same way about all these characters, particularly Caden. All right, so we're running a little low on time, so I want to move on to the next point, which is art, truth, and artificiality. This movie definitely focuses a lot on the power of art and the power of performance to actually reveal reality when reality falters. Uh, he recreates his life trying to find the meaning in his actual life by erecting this artificial version of it, which is very interesting, definitely reminds me a lot of Hamlet. But I'm going to read a a quote from Kaufman, and this quote is actually very similar to what I would say the overall philosophy of Wisecrack is. He said, We are obsessed as a species with the idea of story. We do it constantly. We tell stories about our past, our future, about the environment we're in at the moment. The film is about a guy's life. It isn't about the creative process of being a writer or a director. What Caden is doing in this story can be generalized. It's about how people's brains organize the information they get into stories and try to make some sense of their existence. That's what we do as human beings. It's built into us. And thus yeah. Wisecrack was born. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've heard David Mamet say something similar. David Mamet, the playwright. Um, and to me, that's that, that's been a very profound insight, I think, into the nature of the human experience. Like... I even like to think of it as going so far as the tone that I'm using right now is a dramatic inflection of of a story that I'm trying to say. Like maybe I'm trying to be more somber and serious, so I'm trying to be calm. Whereas if I get all excited and energetic or whatever, there's again, there's a different drama that I'm infusing at the emotional level, not just at the level of the words that I'm telling in that ah, I'm exaggerating because there were 100 people there rather than just 12 people there or something. It's not always that that it's drama in the at the level of words, but it's even at the level of emotion. It's at the level of feeling that I think that everything we're doing is always we're telling a type of narrative to communicate with other people. And everything is just this swapping of dramatic stories. 
Um, even when we think we're just doing scientific analysis, there's still a drama in that. There's a tradition. There's a history. And I think that that one of the things that artists try to do is they try to employ that to to stave off, if you will, the impending doom of death or the anxieties that are being imposed upon them from without. And I think that's something that this film explores radically. Yeah. It also, similar to the death thing, it happens in some pretty subtle and interesting ways early on in the film, even before he starts the art piece. So at the beginning, when right after his wife leaves for Berlin, we see that he's inexplicably watching a cartoon version of himself on Mm -hmm. the television. Right. And then on the same TV, we see a flash forward to the film's final moments as the old Caden is like drifting through the white fog, getting the uh, direction in his earpiece. Mm. And then another very subtle moment is young Hazel instructs Caden how to flirt with her. It's as if their flirtation is being done as a performance, but ultimately is also real. And my favorite example of this as something that blurs this distinction between reality and performance is when he's in Germany trying to find Olive for the first time, he runs off, he's very sad, and he stops and puts tears in tears. his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I love he that. Pulls it's out artificial a, tears is what it said. Right. It's like a performance of grief that is both <laughs> fake and real. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, brilliant. Yes. But... I mean, yeah, if you study this movie like homework like I do, mm. if you're just watching it, you know, it's like... See, the moments like that, though, again, make me laugh out loud. That's just, I yeah. mean, it's great. Have you guys ever seen the movie Holy Motors? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I <laughs> fucking that's love a, that's Holy a, Motors, love right? Love it! Yeah, and, and me too. And Holy Motors kind of explores something similar, too. Um, this idea of playing roles and how we're all maybe just walking through life jumping into these different characters and jumping into these different scenarios. And that's what I was thinking about this film a a lot, is that it's filmed in different scenarios, right? Like, that's kind of what scene means, but I mean mean this in, like, the most literal way that I can... See, I'm trying to be dramatic here with my... I'm trying to put energy into my words right now. Um, But it's, it's like snapshots, of various scenarios of the human experience, at least as understood by the one protagonist, right? Or maybe as like an expression of Kaufman's own experiences of the world. And each of those scenarios is, it's kind of at that interplay between the roles that we play in our lives, the images that we embody, the fantasies that we project, and then of course the real anxieties that are maybe producing them and that are influenced by them. And there's like this duality or a dialectical tension between the two. And and I think that I think that there is something to that, that we do play roles. We do jump into different characters. We do say things because we think somebody else wants us to say things. We do like need external validation so that we can figure out how we're supposed to behave so that we can do it next time better, which is again, we're playing a role. And I, I think that someone like myself is just profoundly attuned to that and I find that being kind of odd and I think that that's one of the things that this film kind of it makes that's why it makes me feel uncomfortable because then I become so aware of when people are just imitating TV scenes or when they're just imitating characters from Jersey Shore or when they're just imitating something and we all do it and it's just it's that tension of realizing imitation versus individuality that I think is something that is so weird well I have an earpiece in my ear the 
at all times tell me what to do. So I take no responsibility for anything I say. You know what's another movie that I think explores a similar theme? Existence? No, it's a movie that you and I saw together, and it's actually not even a narrative fiction. It's a documentary, The Act of Killing. Oh, yeah, dude. So A triple feature of Active Killing, Holy Motors, and Synecdoche, New York. Mwah! It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> our so, next Weisbrack event. The Active Killing dude, is a, is a, is you a documentary that, that you got to see. It's, it's okay. crazy. It's amazing it didn't win an Oscar. Best doc ever. I believe what this documentary is, is during World War II, there was a genocide in, I believe it was either Indonesia or Malaysia. And this is something that in the West we're not educated about. But, you know, we always ask ourselves, like, what if the Nazis won? Well, the Nazis did win. They're not real Nazis, but in terms of, like, people committing mass genocide, thousands of thousands of people, I think hundreds of thousands maybe even just slaughtered. This happened in Malaysia and Indonesia, and, and the people who committed these acts are like celebrities. They're, you know, war heroes. And what this guy does, he's a filmmaker. He goes to this town in Malaysia, and he gets these people who were the executioners who actually by their own hands killed thousands and thousands of people and he gets he tells these guys like hey i'm a filmmaker you guys you fancy yourself gangsters you guys like gangster movies like the godfather like scarface they're all like yeah 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 he's like i'm gonna make a movie that chronicles what you did during the war and basically by making them reenact the horrible things that they done for the first time in over 50 years since the event happened they actually reconsider their acts and have this crisis mm. and it's so powerful to see wow yeah and austin if you're gonna watch it dude there's like four different versions of this movie you must watch the two hour and 40 minute long <laughs> director's cut because there's so much extra stuff that's totally worth it um, wow, okay to watch but yeah it's a very powerful fucked up but all right, I'm Insane just gonna movie. I'm gonna wrap this up with uh, from David Cruz, one of the academics that I cited in this talk. His say he says the ultimate meaning is that there's no grand lesson, no all-encompassing thesis on the meaning of life offered at the end of Synecdoche, New York. Like any artwork, it's incomplete. At once, less than and more than life, it strives to encapsulate the entirety of life, and in its failure to do so, find something breathtakingly beautiful. So. Yeah, I don't buy it, to be honest. <laughs> it's just like saying, saying it's like, too saccharine it's, for Jared. It's a bad piece of art, just like life or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> All right. I'm right there with you, man. All right. So, guys, there's some other readings of this movie. Like, there's one that says that it represents the Jungian individuation process. A lot of these readings you can just find on the Wikipedia page. I'm not going to go through all of them. So, guys, just visit the Wikipedia page if you want to know more. It's actually one of the better fleshed out Wikipedias. Uh, but do you guys Which go? must mean it's a good movie, right? <laughs> of course. Right. If it's one of the more better fleshed there, out Wikipedias. There are some literary references, I think, obviously, that you could also dive into. But I think the whole movie just... Just take the name Cotard. Like it is just riddled with a bunch of these sorts of drops and hints and things that, like Austin, you mentioned earlier. Uh, I think mm. I think Caden is sort of like a, like a Gregor character from the Metamorphosis. I think he's sort of you're seeing him becoming increasingly grotesque, and the reactions are are, mm. are increasing as well, and his own neurosis is growing. But, but anyway, interestingly, the the Kafka work they mention is the trial. Is the trial? Yeah, not Metamorphosis. But I think you kind of just keep seeing. These drops and these hints, like you said, it's, it's a writer's movie. It's an editor's movie. I'm not sure if it's a director's movie. Oh, it's per a se, director's but... movie, man. It's I also the, the the worst line in cinema history is in this movie, and it's a literary reference. The his uh, future wife 
actress, when he's pitching the idea, she says, oh, my God, it's beautiful. It's everything. It's so Karamazov. <laughs> you get that, yeah. like, like a reference to the Dostoevsky novel that, other than the fact that that's also an ambitious work that seems to be about life, love, and everything. everything other than that, I don't think there's anything to it. It's such a bizarre line. Why yeah. is that the worst line in cinema well, history? She does, because it's, well, it's so because it's, it's horribly Jared's favorite obscure. story, and it's bastardizing his favorite story ever. Well, <laughs> it's, right. it's, it's personal. It's, it's, it's personal, story. but also just like seemingly such an inane shout out. Seems like it makes sense in context. I mean, well, I found that to be really interesting because she does that again when she meets up with him from drinks later. And she starts mentioning, she's like, oh, I want it to be like this and like this. And she's kind of just doing this name dropping thing. And I'm like, oh, because I grew up in the theater, I'm like, yeah, that's how a lot of times theater people talk. You know, we sit there and we're like, oh, we want to do Chekhov. It's like Chekhov, but it's Chekhov. It's 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 not mixed. It's mixed Chekhov with Pinter. And, and then you have Pinter and, you know, Eric Bogosian. And you're like mentioning names. And, and that I just found that to be so... I resonated with that because I was like, yeah, I've I've had many of those wanky theater chats. <laughs> We're trying to do something <laughs> real that's authentic and that's connective and that's going to transcend these barriers of artifice that standard theater and standard plays are subject to, blah, 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 blah. And you get into a little bit of that pretentious shit every once in a while. I feel like if you're going to make a pretentious joke, you could at least say the full title of the novel. Like, that's so Karamazov, using it as an adjective. Not oh. even that's so the brothers Karamazov. It's a mouthful, though. I guess. Whatever. All right, guys. So we ran a little bit long today, so we're going to do the mailbag and the voicemails next time because we have a patron that is calling in. Uh, he joined us over at WisecrackPlus.com, and he actually recommended that we do this movie. It's one of his favorite movies, so we all saddled up and watched the movie, and we're excited to talk to him. So, But we'll do the mailbag next week. If you guys want to reach out to us, email us at movies at wisecrack.co or give us a call at 213-534-8807. All right, so our patron's name is Sean, and he is joining us from L.A. Hey, how's it going, man? It's going good, man. Thanks for joining us. All right, man, so this is your favorite movie, right? Yeah, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Well, we just <laughs> well, we just broke it down, and I got to tell you, the we probably— The best we could. <laughs> There was, I mean, there's definitely more. I mean, you could probably fill two more podcasts breaking down Easy. this movie. Yeah. But yeah, I want to ask uh, how many times have you seen it? And what is the thing that you like the most about it? Um, I don't know. I've probably, I can't count the amount of times that I've seen it, probably more than oh. a dozen. <laughs> um, and probably one of the biggest things that attracts me to it is like the total creative control that Charlie Kaufman had over the uh, entirety, like the totality absolutely. of like this piece. And it's definitely a piece of art. And I think that it's one of the pieces of art of our time that like transcends um, in so many ways. Like it speaks about what it means to be like a human and what it means to have like a, a true human experience. And I feel like, I can feel like Charlie Kaufman's like blood and heart and soul being gushed out in every mm. corner of this film. Couldn't have said it better myself. Not going to argue against that. I like like Caden's piece of theater. It is uncompromising. <laughs> <laughs> to, 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 to give you an idea, Sean, and uh, there's four of us here on the pod, and I think Jacob really didn't like it. No, I don't really. I, I, I'm. You're, I like it. You're a barely above fifty percent. Not my favorite Charlie Kaufman movie, but 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 it's good. But uh, I eh. love it. I really love it. Respect it for what it is. I don't. But but agree that you know it's not for everyone. Jared does is kind of with Jacob. 
right? I think that it's a movie that's hard to watch, not fun to watch. It's much more fun to talk about. And you don't think that movies deserve to have dissertations to be enjoyed? No, I mean it's just a different flavor of enjoyment. Right. Okay, I would agree one with that, that you know if, if I'm I not, like if, the flavor. If I'm not busy and I have just a ton of time on my hands and I want to spend six hours watching a movie, rewatching it and researching, then yeah, man, just sign <laughs> me movie. up. But. Yeah. I guess, yeah, that's just kind of not where I'm at these days. And Austin's more on my side. He he gets off on it in, on an intellectual level. So, yeah, that's kind of where, where we're all at on, on the pot. So I think that you fit more on our side, it sounds like. Good job. Have you liked the movie more <laughs> with every time you've seen it? Did you, like, dislike it the first time? Were you just confused? Has it been – is it – have you had any clarifying experiences? Yeah, so the first time I watched it, I think um, I thought it was very slow, and <laughs> I I could see why it's very difficult to to have to to just recommend this movie to anyone and just mm -hmm. be like, yeah, you know, sit down and watch this. This will be great. No, you you gotta like vet the person before you recommend this type of movie to them because they're just gonna stare at you with like glazed over eyes and be like why did you make me watch this this is horribly depressing yeah. and slow it's not, it's not great for a first date <laughs> right. movie. no no i don't know i think it'd be a good litmus test first date movie just be like let's see how cool this person is after this movie are they gonna fucking like fight me or are we gonna have an intellectual conversation over some drinks afterwards uh well i guess if you wanted to that your first date with this movie, <laughs> you better be prepared to have this relationship fail like <laughs> really quickly because yeah. like there's not like one gleaming ounce of hope in this film. Yeah. Like personal relationships, specifically like a sexual one. Like no, there's no chance. I, I agree. <laughs> so, so you're saying the first time you saw it, you thought it was slow, and then w when did it start becoming a, a favorite? over the dozen times that you've seen it. <laughs> um, I think it, the more I learned about the film and the more I started paying attention to certain themes and elements, like the notion of time and how time seems to, well, time in the film, like will jump like insane amounts of like time skips. And I think it mostly has to do with the correlation between like the amount of like uh, <clears throat> rhythm that your life has like once you settle into a routine how time just seems to just fly by where like one moment Caden will be experiencing like October 2003 and then the next minute it's like Halloween and then the next minute it's Christmas and then a year jumps and I can relate to that being an adult and at times like I'll experience the passage of months or even a year fairly quickly. Whereas when I was younger, every day seemed to drag on forever. Oh yeah. And, mm. and so that resonates with me at like a very personal level and a subjective level. Cause I feel that, but also Caden's obsession with death and the fact that we have this limited amount of time and it seems to be fleeting us at every passing moment like at an accelerating pace and we're all just hurtling towards death and his obsession with trying to find like some some create something with such deep meaning and and recognition for his to be recognized and for ultimately for that to never end and for him to live a life of in his eyes failure 
Mm. Yeah, and it's almost like he thinks that the more that he creates, the more information, the more communication, the more artifice he builds, the bigger his play gets, the more truth he's able to inscribe and articulate that somehow that's going to like uh, push death further away. But it doesn't. It literally does the opposite, right? It brings it closer. It makes it more dramatic. It makes it more intense. The pace of his life, the intensity of his life increases, even though it's he thinks it might be doing the opposite. And that's kind of I, – I think that that is a, is a strange tendency of what it means to be human anyway. Because like you say, when you're a little kid – it does. Days are endless. But that's because when you're five, a year is literally a fifth of your life. And then when you're 50, it is, is a lot. You have a, a, a different differential relationship to the scale of what a year means. It's no longer a fifth of your life. It's a 50th of your life. And that just only increases. So it's as you accumulate more pressures and intensities and demands upon you, it, it almost makes it uh, move faster. I think that's a really interesting concept. Like if you were to like take it like one step further and be like, okay, let's say you're 50, right? Like what is a day to you at that point? Like a day at that point has been like, um, let's say like roughly it's like 400. So like you've experienced like about, you know, 20,000 some odd days, like at some point when you're 50. And so like one, one of one divided by 20,000 is like nothing, for you, a day right. can pass by in the right. blink of an eye in comparison to when you're a child. Right. Whereas one divided Absolutely. by 2,000 is very different. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take yeah. a more, because uh, uh, I totally agree with everything you guys just said, but I'm going to take also a more literal reading of this movie that it's also about, like, you know, perfectionists. Obviously, because he the whole he spends eighteen twenty years making this this piece of art, and I thought for sure I remember distinctly the first time I watched it, remembering man I can't wait till the end of the movie when we see the first like production scene. Like I thought that was for sure where it was leading, right? That we were gonna at some point get to see them perform that, and that's kind of how this movie was gonna end. I definitely didn't see it just kind of them all accepting that it was gonna go on forever, basically, and it did go on, and it just kind of ends. Like, like, I think that there's something that he's also saying about when is a piece of art ever done, you know, that kind of thing. And mm. then, you know, when you extrapolate that to life, you know, if you know, then there's a whole other thing. Yeah, because he but, says that uh, he's going to yeah. do something about what, like truth and whatever else, whatever other terms he uses. And the fact that it never gets completed, it changes how it is that we understand that pursuit of truth and that pursuit of beauty and that pursuit of the real Right, and then the, the fucking title of his play is Simulacra. So, well, that was one of the sugge many suggested titles. Right. Um, also, you're talking about the time jumps and stuff. I think the, the uh, and we kind of talked about this too in the rest of the pod. But the, I feel like the first time that the the first true time jump is at the dentist scene when when. He, he, you, you see him being operated on. Then they're like, "All right, we're gonna need uh, to see you in three months." And then a smash cut straight to him being operated on again. And you're like, "Okay, is this the same uh, dentist appointment he was just at, or is this three months later?" And then, and then a couple scenes later, you learn that it's been a year or so. And and so I think that that you're supposed to, in hindsight, be like, "Oh wow, yeah, that they, that there was three months in between that cut at the dentist." Yeah, and then maybe from his experience, that temporal distinction between the appointment and the surgery doesn't really matter because in his life what matters are the traumatic events and and that so 
it's kind of like his the way that he understands his own temporal experience of life is through these bad experiences. Like, is there a moment when he had a good night's rest, that he had a cocktail, that he watched a good TV show, that he had, you know, a lovely intimate evening? None of that stuff matters because it's all filtered through his fear of death and these other weird, like, violent experiences that he's having. Yeah. There's a, another really interesting thing i guess about this film too is that as he's like making this you know theater piece and as it becomes what he feels like is more and more of a representation of the true reality the real itself um he loses touch with the actual reality of his world because there's like we get like little glimpses and snapshots of like what it's like out in the streets and it seems like it's kind of dystopian and there seems to be some type of like issues going on in like the global um, economic system in his world. And he pays no attention to it. It's <laughs> never mentioned. Um, you hear some things on the news about like some huge earthquake that happens and he's completely disinterested, doesn't even mention it. And, and I think that's kind of interesting. The fact that the more obsessed that I think, I think what, Kaufman's trying to say is that like the more obsessed we become with like pursuing our own personal like interests and the more we try to realize that perfection in our reality we lose touch of the actual real world around us absolutely did you see Anomalisa Sean uh no I have it but I haven't okay. sat down and watched it yet I think you dig it man if you like if you like this film because that's another very strange film dealing with similar themes about just being enclosed within your own interests to the neglect of everything else outside of you um but I feel like Sean, it's even and more really eerie awkward than this film sex scenes awkward sex scenes but I think it's a much it's a much tighter more economical version of some similar themes as this yeah, movie. Yeah, there's an hour less of screen yeah. time. <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just like a super tight little story, but it encapsulates a lot of the same themes of isolation and loneliness and like an inability mm. to connect and that kind of thing. Sean, right. Sean, do you think that we're supposed to hate Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie? We were talking about that earlier. Ooh, that's, I think that Philip Seymour Hoffman's like a vessel of some of the worst qualities of humanity in some aspects and in some aspects some of the best because he has this pure like childlike unadulterated view of just trying to do like his dream just trying to pursue his dream of creating this beautiful piece of art and so like i think we can all like resonate and connect with that mm. on like an empathetic level and be like yeah you know like i have this one dream that i've always wanted to do and I'm going to throw everything away, even reality itself, my personal relationships, everything just to pursue it. So there's like this capitalistic, you know, very American view of like, that's great. That's awesome. That's totally what you should be doing. But at the same time, you see like the amount of suffering and pain and even the like attempts of suicide and the inability to connect with anyone and the extreme sense of loneliness that he has man that's like it's awful to watch unfold on screen and so as a result like you're supposed to i feel like empathize with him and connect with the pain that he's going through and the suffering because we all go through that same pain and suffering but at the same time uh i don't think hate i think hate's too strong a word i think you're supposed to feel sadness for this man I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. I'm, thanks, I'm curious. Thanks a lot, Sean. So you mentioned earlier 
how the way that time functions in this movie is something that speaks to you. How much of that do you attribute to the accident he has at the beginning with the faucet hitting him in the head? Do you th- do you think that the movie is supposed to, the way that time operates is independent of that? That it's just meant to show how life just can just tear by, or are we? Are we viewing some sort of the subjectivity of a man who's got like a mental disease brought on by a concussion or something? Okay, so like a literal reading of the faucet equating to like the the time issues, right? Yeah, um, and, and if I not the faucet, is it a dream? But I don't read it that way. I I read uh I read that faucet scene as the following so like whenever you um do action x that in your life like let's say you buy a car or you i don't know jump on an airplane and you take a flight to like new zealand or something um that airplane flight that you take could very well be the airplane flight that you die in like any specific action you take um could eventually be the very thing that kills you. So like if you buy a car, that car might explode on the freeway for some random crazy reason and you might die in it. Or if you buy a home, like the faucet that you change out at Home Depot and you go back to your house and you switch it out for it, you might have made a mistake like three years ago. (laughs) And now that faucet is going to kill you because it's going to explode because of some like pressure warning and you're going to die and I think like the highest probability of like human death is related to the home. I think that's where you're most likely to die. That in like a five mile radius of your home if you're in your car. Hmm. So maybe maybe it has something to do with that. Maybe it's just pure statistics. Yeah, huh? but. Well, there is that there is that lovely scene where that pastor gives that that sermon where he's talking about there are all these like thousands of strings that attach themselves to each individual choice, and every time you make a choice, you're you're killing yourself because you're yeah. cutting yourself off from the potential did like other monologue. thousands of choices. So there's something in that too. In the same vein, Sean, what do you make of Hazel's burning house? Oh, that's that's a tough one. I, what, what do you guys think? Well, what's that famous Tennessee Williams quote about a burning house? It's, you know it's the on the well-researched about? Wikipedia page. Uh, <laughs> Tennessee Williams. What, it, what I, is it? I know that there's a quote. I don't know what it is though. Yeah, we all live in a house on fire. No fire department to call, no way out, just the upstairs window to look out of while the fire burns the house down with us trapped, locked in it. And that was one of the literary references Mm. that I was mentioning. I mean, with all of the literary references that Kaufman is throwing out, I think that's very intentional allusion to that Tennessee Williams quote. And the idea that, you know, choosing your own way to die, this is what it means. to That's another synecdoche, right? The house is a synecdoche of of a condition of life. That this is how it is. We're trapped in this fucking burning house. Um, and then the interesting thing is that Hazel chooses the house. As in she's choosing her death. Right? She's choosing her way to die. And um, there's something very existential about this that I think is interesting. About choice. About the choices that you make. And about when you make a choice, you're cutting yourself off simultaneously from the thousand other choices that you're not making. And to feel that weight and to be aware of that, even though it's crushing and depressing... But to feel that that you die right. a thousand tiny deaths every day de- with every choice. But it, but 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 it's a metaphor for that. It's not. I mean, like like. Well, no, right. she really does die. Well, from, she does die from inhalation. From inhalation. <laughs> well, right. But but but. 
but it's simultaneously the, the a metaphor, few people though. that be, because everyone that is around that house the the uh, uh, is cool with it, which isn't how people behave, right? We can <laughs> all we can all acknowledge well, I mean, that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's absurd. It's absurd and it's surreal. I, I I think when we when we say it's a metaphor, that almost seems to denigrate the value of kind of what's going on there. I mean, of course, it's a metaphor, but I think that everything is a metaphor. If I show right. you I'm five just fingers, to like, like, that's a metaphor, you know? <laughs> when I was when I first watched this movie, we kind of went into this earlier, but, you know, I was very into what is the reality of that we're watching, and, and especially uh, that. It was kind of like, yeah, this is clearly a metaphor for something, or whatever you're saying. Right. You know, it's standing in, it's not, we're not, it's not literal, but for a movie that we're saying is about life and everything and people, it, but, like, isn't it operating in, in the world that we live in it's kind of an interesting that's what I, part of why i like it but it is kind of like interesting to dissect what the what, what where is this story taking place you mm-hmm. know and maybe we could say that the world that we operate in the real world is also just a metaphorical world we just aren't oh, we just aren't sh- as comfortable with explicit metaphors <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Mind blown. If we had a Matrix sound effect, that would well, be the perfect I, I time. think, like, to Austin's point, I mean, like, that 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 is, like, a good way of looking at it, is yeah. that, like, the entire film can be viewed upon as, like, a dream. I think even, like, the beginning and end is very much like a dream. Like, there's callbacks to, throughout the entire film. And with the passage of time being so sporadic and inconsistent throughout the entire film that's essentially how people experience dreams is that there's no linearity in time there's these skips when you dream and sometimes you wake up and and you go to sleep and wake up in the same spot um and you can kind of see that throughout the entire film but i wanted to circle back to the house on fire thing with hazel I think I have an answer. Um, When Hazel's house is on fire, I guess Caden's only true connection in life and his soulmate was Hazel. And he burned down that relationship and went with, uh, was it um, Ariel? Yeah, Claire. Ariel's the second daughter, yeah. Ariel's the daughter that he has with Claire, right? Yeah. 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 And he doesn't even know Claire like on any level. And it, it seems to be implied that they have hardly any physical relations. And the only physical relations that they might've had was the one or two times that was on screen. And that might've led to the accidental conception of Ariel. So Mm -hmm. I think that when he sees her later, he realizes the mistake he made by choosing Claire and, and, not staying with Hazel, not trying to make that work. And he attempts suicide on the building of the roof when he sees her with the triplets and Derek Mm. in New York. Yeah. And I guess the other um, thing to circle back on is all the tiny billions of deaths that we suffer every single day by either choosing to take an action and by consequence, not choosing the other actions or inaction itself, which is, which is a form of losing potential, uh, potentials potential choices is uh when he's on the airplane and he's reading the self-help book from a psychologist who wears way too tight shoes yeah. and, <laughs> I, I was gonna, literally about to ask about this 
It makes me really uncomfortable every time like the camera zooms in on her feet and it just kind of grosses me out. And I just want to like reach into the screen and just uh, like take off her shoes and be like, just stop. Like, this is gross. Uh, (laughs) But anyways, he's reading the book and she makes a pass at him and he and then the book ends and the book reads what she was saying and those are those little inactions that we don't take that don't lead down to certain paths. And, and yeah, that weight is heavy. And I, and it almost seems like in the airplane scene that Caden um, doesn't realize it. He almost seems confused by it. Yeah. You mean in the, in the sense that, that, that he doesn't know that she's coming on to him. Yeah, yeah, totally. that, and also he doesn't seem to feel the weight of his inaction. That his tiny choice of not sleeping with her could have led to something. Yeah, yeah, and I never really thought about it, it like the that. The book is over, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and um, but at the same time, like she's kind of a smarmy person too. I loved her character, like how she just like interrupts every single line of it any time anybody says anything. Um, so I could see why she wouldn't necessarily want to be with him, uh, or her, he want to be with her, but also just that, yeah, that moment is kind of one of those trolley moments too. I was talking about earlier, Jared, just the fact, or, or just absurd, you know, th- like, like the, the way I take the form of this movie is that it's more of just like a sandbox of life. There's just things that are happening in life, but they're not, they don't add up to how we usually do. They're, he's just playing with, with conventions in a fun way. Anyway. Hmm. Well, when we start when we start covering late stage von Trier, we'll get into some real. <laughs> oh, <trolling. God. laughs> All right, I think we're gonna go ahead and have to wrap it up. Thank you so much for joining us, Sean, and thank you for being a patron. If you guys want to join us over at Wisecrack Plus, it's wisecrackplus.com or patreon.com/slash/wisecrack. And that's it from us. Yeah, so, Sean, thanks a lot, yeah, man, for yeah, joining us. Yeah, rock and roll, man. That and was thank fun. you, thank you for um, recommending this film. Because we had a lot of fun. It was a it was a challenge, but we had a really great conversation. Yeah, for sure. I had a lot of fun rewatching it too. Thirteenth <laughs> uh, time. <laughs> my, one of my actual favorite movies that's uh like more mainstream is the Matrix series. Yeah. So you guys did a good job on that one. Oh, thank I you. can go toe to toe with you quoting Smith for days. Oh, <laughs> hell yeah, baby. <laughs> awesome. All right. <laughs> Cool. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up today. I want to thank my co-host for joining me. Where can we find you on the internet, Ryan? You can find me on this uh, cool website called YouTube.com. All right. Wow. Look up Ryan's shorts, like a pair of shorts or like short films. I put them up there every week, damn it. I love making shit. They're hilarious. Catch them. I love you. I love you. And Austin. Uh, You can hit me up on Twitter if you want, Austin underscore Hayden. And I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn if you want to hear more about wanky pretentious shit. And Jacob. Uh, Find us at Wisecrack. Jared and I are both doing the Wisecrack thing. So at Wisecrack or Wisecrack underscore official on Instagram. Yeah, that's pretty much my answer too. All right, we're signing off. We'll see you guys next week for Fight Club and then the week after that for Starship Troopers. Yeah, baby. Hell yeah, baby. Good job, everyone. We did it. Woo! See you guys. All right, goodbye from Hollywood, California, and go vote! 
Adios. <laughs>